Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. You are a purveyor of weather Twitter, this man needs no introduction. Odds are you've seen at least one of its incredible and easily digestible hurricane stats during the past hurricane season as well. Today's episode is with Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State University. We are going to discuss this monumental hurricane season and all of the records that it shattered. We'll also talk about Dr. Klotzbach's seasonal forecast from Colorado State that he championed after the legendary Dr. William Gray's passing. Bill, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. It's great to see you virtually. I, I, I kept wanting to say Florida State instead of Colorado State in the intro there. I had to ca- catch myself. But it really is an honor to have, have you on. Uh, Phil is just one of the sort of landmark headlining names in the weather community, I believe. And I, I, it's an honor to have, have him on. If you have consumed any information about seasonal hurricane forecasts and prediction, it's likely that it was some of uh, Phil's work. And so I, I look forward to talking to him about all of this today. But we have to start with the weather geeks question that we ask every guest. How'd you get into your field? How'd you become a weather geek? Yeah, so I feel like I was just kind of born into it, and I suspect that's probably an answer you get. You get quite a bit. You know, um, I grew up in New England, so I grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, so right on the water. So I was fascinated by, of course, nor'easters growing up in New England. Got to get a, but also we had Hurricane Gloria come through. It made landfall in Connecticut, but I was five years old at the time, and that really kind of gripped me because it was just it did moderate levels of damage where I was at the time, but it was just, it was kind of one of those gripping mem- memories of like, you know, what causes, why would this hurricane happen? Why was it so powerful? Um, and then kind of since then, I've just always been really fascinated by the weather in general, but especially with hurricanes. So trying to figure out, figure out as, as Dr. Bill Gray say, trying to figure out what makes him tick. Well, and that's, that's actually, I, I, you led into my next question because I was curious if you always had a specific passion for tropical weather. And I also wanted to get, I mean, uh, your insights into what it was like to work with and collaborate with the legendary Dr. Gray. Yeah. And so I was, I've been really interested in hurricanes for, for a long time since I was about four or five years old. Um, and so I got my undergraduate degree um, at Bridgewater State College, now university in Massachusetts, um, in geography. And I was, I did my undergraduate thesis on seasonal hurricane predictions. So I was already kind of interested in that area. Um, and then I worked for a year um, and then decided to apply to graduate school. And one of the ones I applied to was CSU. And that was always my first choice, you know, if I get into CSU. And so I was at work and Dr. Gray had called my house. And so my mom um, she had, she, she heard the voicemail being left. And so I was super excited to hear, you know, Bill Gray's voice on the, on the, on the answering machine. And so, um, yeah, we, but I had the great privilege. He asked me to come out to grad school. So I studied under him, got my master's and my PhD under him. And then just, I had the privilege of working with him until his passing in uh, April of 2016. And let me just give you a little bit of um, Dr. Klotzbach's background. He's a research scientist in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at Colorado State University. He's been working with the department for the past 17 years. 
uh, a co-author on the Atlantic Basin Hurricane Forecast with William Gray through 2005, was first author on the Seasonal Hurricane Forecast in 2006, developed the two-week forecast currently being issued during peak months of the hurricane season between August and October, October has published over two dozen articles in the peer-reviewed journals, uh, and has a master's and PhD, as you've heard, from Colorado State University. And I'm, I'm happy to see that you also have a geography degree. I'm, I'm in a geography department at the University of Georgia, although we also have an atmospheric sciences program. And it, though it's not on my production notes, I believe you are currently the director of, is it the Tropical Meteorology? I mean, what is the group called that you're affiliated with there at CSU? Okay, so the so the tropical meteorology project is um, basically that's the seasonal hurricane forecast. Okay. So yeah. I, I, I'm the lead author on the forecast. So, okay. so that's how it's referred to. Yeah, yeah. I make sure people because I think some people are familiar with with that because that's on on, on your website. And so, yes, uh, yes. outstanding website by the way. Make sure you uh, are familiar with and following that. Uh, as, as we mentioned in the intro, Phil's one of the best follows in Twitter for weather and climate information, particularly around hurricane season, but all throughout the year as well. Uh, and this all was born out of your collaboration and interactions with Dr. Gray over the years. Uh, the seasonal forecasts have become a staple in, in uh, Atlantic hurricane season. Give our listeners a little peek into what goes into them. Yeah, and so I'll probably start a little bit with kind of like why seasonal hurricane forecasts even got started. And so, Dr. So Dr. Bill Gray was he was a, he was a he was a, a really good scientist. So he's best known for the seasonal hurricane predictions. But probably, I guess if I were to say his most kind of fundamental research was even around tropical cyclone genesis, like why tropical cyclones even form. He published a paper in 1968, which. If you go back and look at this paper, I mean, just the amount of time and effort, like now all these databases are online. You can just grab the data, plot it up, and it's, it's trivial. But in 1968, he was like hand counting these storms. And like when he plotted, so he basically he figured out what are the ingredients? Why do storms, why do storms form where they do? Why, aren't, why don't we get hurricanes at 60 degrees north? Why don't we get hurricanes generally in the South Atlantic Ocean, things like that. And so he put together kind of a sort of these genesis parameter, which are basically six fundamental ingredients for tropical cyclone formation. And that, that parameter was put together in 1968, and it's still, it's been tweaked a little bit, but it's still pretty much used almost in its original form 50 plus years later. And, it's, and, and it goes into climate models. I mean, it goes into all sorts of different things. So it's, it's just this fundamental research that he did over 50 years ago is still being used. But when it comes to seasonal hurricane prediction, Dr. Gray was teaching a tropical meteorology class. I think it was in 1982. And he was an encyclopedia, basically. He was Wikipedia before Wikipedia existed. And so he knew which years were active hurricane seasons, and he knew which years were El Nino years. And so he thought to himself, you know, hey, these don't seem to match up. Basically, when you have an El Nino year, the Atlantic hurricane seasons tend to be quieter. And at the same time, there's a gentleman, Neville Nichols, down in Australia, who is doing a similar analysis for the Australian region. And so they actually happened to meet at CSU and discuss this. Um, and it's interesting because El Nino knocks down hurricanes near, knocks down hurricanes in the Atlantic and knocks down hurricanes near our cyclones near Australia and everywhere else generally it increases the number, but they happen to be working in two areas where El Nino reduces your Atlantic hurricanes. And so Dr. Gray was, he loved, he always loved prediction and forecasting, whether it was hurricanes, sporting events, election results, all this stuff. He loved prediction. And so he thought, 
that's pretty cool that we can maybe say something before the hurricane season starts as to how active it's going to be. We don't have a perfect El Nino forecast June 1st, but June 1st, we generally know whether it's going to be an El Nino or a La Nina. Therefore, we can use that for prediction. And so he used that and some other parameters in the early 1980s. And at that point, it was really, really hard to like you had to call up people and get them to send you the data. Whereas now obviously all the data is online and you can grab it really quickly. But that was kind of how it got started was those relationships along the lines of El Nino. And I'm sure we can get in and talk a little more about how that potentially impacted the, uh, the 2020 hurricane season. Oh yeah. We're going to get all into that. But before we do though, I, I want to kind of break it down even on, on a more simplistic level. Uh, what is it about the El Nino that it, is suppressive, if you will, for Atlantic hurricanes versus the La Nina phase, which tends to be more active? I, I know it has something to do with sort of the upper level patterns, jet stream and so forth, but for our listeners. Yeah. And so um, El Nino is warmer than normal water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific. And it usually occurs about every three to seven years. It's not Perfect. It would be nice if it was. It's okay. It's four, every fourth year we get El Nino, but it's, it doesn't behave that way. But every three to seven years or so, roughly, you get one of these El Nino events. And when you have these El Nino events, basically what it does is it shifts where the thunderstorms tend to form in the, in the tropical Pacific Ocean. It shifts them more to the central tropical Pacific from Indonesia. And what that does is the upper level winds that go out of those thunderstorms spread out at upper levels and you get stronger upper level westerly winds that tend to tear apart hurricanes. And that's one of the primary reasons. That's one of the, that was basically kind of like Bill Gray's figure one in his first seasonal prediction paper was effectively that that relationship. Um, but then also, it also tends to warm up the upper levels in the atmosphere. So say 20, 30,000 feet, and that tends to stabilize the atmosphere somewhat too. So in addition to more shear, which tears apart hurricanes, it also tends to stabilize the atmosphere. And that's something that was learned about a little bit later than when Bill Gray was doing his original analysis. So it's kind of that double whammy of more shear, warmer upper levels, stabilizing the atmosphere. It's really why El Nino knocks down hurricanes and alternatively when you have La Nina you tend to have less shear and you tend to have um, the upper levels tend to be a little bit colder which helps support stronger thunderstorms and that especially El Nino and La Nina's impacts tend to be strongest during the late season so later in the season um, when you have an El Nino it really kills your late season so your October November storms alternatively when you have a La Nina like we had this year you get a lot of late season activity in 2020 is effectively a classic example of that and effectively on steroids even more than you would say normally expect for a La Nina and I'm sure we'll go into why the late season was just quite so nuts yeah, uh, a little bit yeah this 2020 season was crazy and it has the fingerprints of what you just heard Dr. Klotzbach say all over it. But uh, before we get into 2020, and that's what we're going to spend the bulk of the podcast on. Um, yeah, so I know that the ENSO cycle is a big component of your seasonal prediction, but I, I remember as a grad student at Florida State and others and starting to really, you know, Florida State does a little tropical meteorology. And I remember studying some of your early work or and Gray's early work, I should say. And I started hearing things about Sahelian rainfall and uh, other things that, that go into this. So what are some of the other things that go in? And then the question that I think many people want to know is how, how good are these forecasts? Yeah. And so, you know, these forecasts have changed with time. The, what, what Bill Gray used in 1984, some of those predictors we still use fairly similar, uh, fairly similar analysis, but we also use a bunch of other different things now too. And some of that's just because we have so much more data now we can kind of basically see how these global patterns relate. And so if you look at our seasonal forecasts, we put out our first forecast with numbers in April, and then we updated in June, early July, and early August. 
and while August is two months into the hurricane season, about 95% of all your major hurricane activity, your category three, fours, and fives, occur after the first of August. So it gives us one last shot. And for example, in 2020, we, we upped our numbers in August from what we had in July because it said, okay, it looks like it's gonna be really, really, really active. And that was good to increase those numbers. Um, so you get kind of, June, July gives you a lot of information and July gives you a tremendous amount of information when it comes to the seasonal prediction business. Um, but yeah, so we use a variety of different predictors. And so when we do our first forecast in April, if you look at our model, we'll use predictors that kind of span the globe a little more. And that's because what you're looking for in April, which is still two months prior to the start of the season, four months prior to when things really ramp up in August, is you're looking for kind of these teleconnections, which basically are basically um, how large scale conditions say fairly far removed from the Atlantic then change pressure and wind patterns that then impact the tropical Atlantic for the peak of the season. And then once we get more towards June, July, August, you're looking more for predictors right in the heart of the either directly related to El Nino or directly related to what's going on in the Atlantic. And that's because the tropical Atlantic has a lot of persistence. So basically if the wind shear is low, has been low for the past few weeks, it's likely to remain low. Um, and, and that happened get a lot of persistence during the summer. And that's one of the reasons why these forecasts generally have reasonably good skill is, is because there is some of this persistence in tropical weather, whereas you don't get that kind of persistence in mid-latitude weather, especially, you know, if you live in the mid-latitudes, you know, just because it's hot today doesn't mean it's going to be hot tomorrow. Um, there's a lot more variability and that's why the seasonal forecasts have skill, um, predicting overall levels of activity, but there's still a real challenge to say, trying to predict where the storms will likely to go at a seasonal time scale. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at bite.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. On the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State University, and he is he is Dr. Seasonal Prediction <laughs> Hurricanes. I'm going to go ahead and give him that moniker, at least in this generation. And so, you know, it's a colleague. He's a colleague that I follow closely on on social media, and I sort of see what Phil's saying throughout the hurricane season. And I, I I highly recommend you do the same if you don't. We'll we'll get all of his social media credentials a little bit later in the podcast. But now let's let's shift to um, 2020. It was a phenomenal hurricane season with 30 named storms. Uh, it, it rivaled 2005. Now, one of the interesting things, I know you were talking a lot about this 
uh, is that 2005 and 2020 were similar in that we both got into the uh, Greek name storms. I think 2005 probably had more stronger storms than that is reflected through something called ACE, which I'd like you to describe, uh, this accumulated cyclone energy. Uh, But we had more storms, I guess, overall, I guess we broke the record in 2020 compared to 2005. So just let's start off with just some overall compare and contrast between 2005 and 2020. Yeah, so obviously both are very, very active seasons. Um, So 2020 had more storms. We had 30 storms in 2020. We had 28 in 2005. Um, 2005 had more hurricanes. We had 15 in 2005. We had 13 in 2020. And 2005 had more major hurricanes. So these are category three, fours, and fives, winds of 111 miles an hour greater. We had seven in 2005. We had six this year. Um, And also, if you look at the really, really high-end storms, so the category five hurricanes, this year we had one, which was the last hurricane of the year, Iota, um, which seems kind of crazy that you know, if you had gone to Vegas on June 1st and said, I'm going to bet that we're going to, first of all, make it to Iota and that's going to be a Cat 5, you would have gotten some really, really good odds, I'm sure. Um, but in 2005, we actually had four Category 5 hurricanes. We had Emily, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. Um, and obviously, all those storms were extremely impactful. Um, Emily and some, Emily um, in the Caribbean, and then Katrina, Rita, and Wilma, obviously, hitting the U.S. Um, so from a, from a damage perspective and from an intensity perspective, 2005 was 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 more, um, but obviously in terms of the overall number of storms, 2020 was higher. Um, and also in terms of number of landfalling hurricanes, we had more in 2020. We just the storms hit caused damage, but we didn't have a any of those hurricanes hit a major metropolitan area head on. So the damage in terms of the overall financial damage was high, but not nearly as high as say we saw in 2005. Obviously at Hurricane Laura, which was a Cat Four that went into Southwest Louisiana, had that made landfall. 100 miles farther west and got up the Houston Ship Channel, the, obviously the financial damage from that particular storm would have been much, much higher than what we saw. Now, now as we think about 2020, you alluded to this earlier in the discussion, uh, La Nina, sort of early La Nina phase and into La Nina, that likely had some bearing on the activity, in particular the late season activity that we, we saw in 2020. Uh, I'm curious about whether there are other factors that from your lens that you saw that sort of define 2020. But then there's another question and I'll follow up on why so many storms are hitting this sort of Gulf of Mexico as opposed to Florida and North Carolina. But the first question is, what other factors beyond La Nina made 2020 so unique? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that really stood out to me about 2020 was just all these storms basically rapidly intensifying up to or almost up to the point of landfall. I think that to me is a classic hallmark. That's kind of what I'll take away from this season is one of the things I remember. And so you had mentioned it earlier, this accumulated cycle and energy index. What that is, is it's basically takes the wind speed at every six hourly interval where you have a storm and you square it. So it basically approximates the kinetic energy generated by storms. So it's basically an index that accounts for the intensity and the duration of storms. And so in 2020, we had a lot of storms, we had a lot of hurricanes, but most of these storms basically were intensifying right up to the point of landfall. So we didn't have too many long duration storms. Um, so we, we got, our accumulated cycle energy was high, it was about 180, an average season is a little over 100. But if you compare it with say 2005, 2005 was about 250. Um, so we were, we were well above normal this year, but not nearly up to 2005, and that's because the storms in, two, in 
2020 just didn't last particularly long. So they didn't have these long track storms. So for example, 2017 had only 17 storms. We had 30 this year, but 2017 generated more ace because most people probably remember Hurricane Irma, which seemed like it was out there for a month. Various long-lived, very intense major hurricane. Hurricane Maria was also long-lived and intense. And then the other storm that people kind of forget about was Hurricane Jose, which thankfully didn't significantly impact people, but it was a very another very long-lived major hurricane. So all three of those storms generated phenomenal levels of ACE. So even though 2017 only had 17 storms, its ACE total was was significantly higher than what we had in 2020. But 2020, to me, one of the hallmarks was all those rapid intensification events close to the point of landfall. And a lot of that was due to the fact we had very low shear and then also um, we had very warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. That's pretty normal to have very warm water, but we also, the Caribbean was extremely warm late, um, even warmer than normal. So the extremely warm Caribbean combined with a really low shear, basically October environment was more like September and November environment was more like October. So that's why we're able to see all those storms really ramping up. And especially, I mean, getting two category four hurricanes, sorry, two category four hurricane landfalls into Nicaragua in November, just, stuff that you just wouldn't expect to normally see. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I had Brian McNoldy on another episode that will air at some point, and we got into this idea. So many of us, I don't know how you, you, you tweeted something about how uh, frequently the Louisiana state of Louisiana was in, in sort of watcher warning boxes. I believe you or others were discussing that. And so we got into this discussion and Brian didn't really have an answer for this, but I'm curious about your thoughts. So we've speculated on some things about why 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 that particular part of our coastline was more vulnerable this year because it's actually one of the unique things to me was that Florida really didn't deal with too many hurricanes this 2020 season or North Carolina I guess North Carolina had a few but uh, any speculation on what was going on with why I mean is it just this, the way the Bermuda High the Atlantic High was set up or what was going on with why that region was so active this year well to me it was interesting it was a really interesting year because we had so if you had asked, if I had been on Weather Geeks in August and we had been discussing, you know, how do you think the storms are going to play out? I would have said it would have been more like 2017 where you get a lot of stuff coming off Africa, trekking all the way across. That would have been what I thought. And so we got the, the seasonal forecast all in all generally were, were pretty good. I think they generally call for a pretty active season and we got it. But we had, a, we had Africa, as you mentioned, the Sahel rainfall was, very, was extremely high. We had a tremendous number of waves moving off Africa that were very vigorous. Some of them developed right off Africa, but most of them died really quickly. But we had a lot of wave energy that basically trekked through the central Atlantic where the environment wasn't particularly conducive, and they really didn't ramp up until they got to, say, 60, 70 degrees west. And once you get into that area, it's, it's bad because if those storms do develop, they're going to hit. There's not really any place they can go that they don't hit somebody. And so the steering was just a little bit more... Basically, these storms didn't really form until they were almost into the Gulf of Mexico or into the Caribbean. So, you know, what made the storm hit Louisiana as opposed to Texas or, or Mississippi is kind of just effectively what's going on with day-to-day -day weather. But I think a lot of it was we just didn't get a lot of these storms really forming until they got farther west. So they were just kind of basically, so effectively, sorry, I get a little ahead of myself, effectively storms that come off Africa, typically if they develop fairly far east, they tend to go a little bit north of due west. So those are the storms that tend to hit either the east coast of Florida, North Carolina, or most of them thankfully just recurve and go out into the ocean. But if they're weaker, they tend to just go right along with the trade winds straight from east to west. So they stay at a little lower latitudes. And basically those storms that go on lower latitudes, basically if 
if these storms are at lower latitudes, they're just more likely to continue trekking west. And so they don't gain, they don't, basically, if you look at the discussion that the Hurricane Center always talks about the infamous, like the western periphery of the subtropical high or the Bermuda high, and that's where the storms go from going kind of west, they start to go to the north, they get the, hit the jet stream, hits them, and they go out to sea. But these storms are just staying farther south of that. They were too far south to go to start, they were too far south to gain much latitude. Um, so they just kind of trekked along straight west, and then by the time they formed, they were already either in um, the Gulf of Mexico or in, in the Eastern Caribbean, Central Caribbean, and those storms tend to either, either go west or northwest. And yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, it's, I hate to say it on a, you know, we're supposed to be scientists and have great, great answers, but I think some of it, again, at the end of the day is luck. You know, I mean, whether a storm goes 100 miles west or east is just governed by the, the ridge trough pattern on the days that the storm happens to be approaching land. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm speaking with Dr. Phil Klotzbach, who's a tropical weather expert, hurricane specialist, and expert. Not specialist. I'm thinking talking about the uh, National Hurricane Center monikers there. He's a hurricane uh, scientist and uh, one of the best at it. We're talking about the 2020 hurricane season. So this this has been a little bit of a controversial topic in meteorology. This idea of storms getting named. There's this notion that some people, and perhaps you're in this camp, that some of these little storms that perhaps were named early in the season wouldn't have been named in the past. Where, where, where do you come down on that and, and what are the implications of that? Well, and so Chris Lancey at the Hurricane Center has done a lot of work on this. And so basically starting, especially around 2000, we got some new microwave sensors which basically, basically help to determine, you know, better if these storms really do have warm cores. Um, so basically that's kind of the hallmark of a tropical cyclone is warm near the center um, at low levels. And so, um, that likely has led to some of these weak, short-lived storms being named. And so Chris Lancey looks at storms that last two days or fewer, and there's been a big increase in that, um, especially since around 2000. Um, so yes, I mean, there may have been some, some of these weak, short-lived storms that were named in 2020 may not have been named, say, 30, 40 years ago. Um, so when, when you're looking at, say, comparing, say, 2020 with, a, say, a season like, for example, 1933. We just, wrote, we just published a paper on that in the bulletin of the AMS. Um, I'm looking at the 1933 hurricane season, which had 20 storms um, officially, but we didn't have aircraft data. We didn't have satellites. So stuff in the eastern Atlantic may have been missed just because we didn't have a way to know it was there unless a ship happened to encounter it. Um, but then the question is, you know, how many storms were did we miss in the there's really no way to know. Um, so there may be a, an increasing trend a little bit in the 
weak number of weak short there there is an increasing trend in the number of weak short-lived storms that's probably more just due to improved observations as opposed to actually physically getting more weak short-lived storms um but when it comes to things like ace they don't really they don't add much to ace so that's why i like using so when we forecast a season the primary metric that our models are forecasting is ace and then we kind of back out the other numbers from that ace prediction and the nice thing with ace is that it Weak storms generate very little ACE, so if they name if, if a weak storm's out there for a day or two, it doesn't really hardly impact the ACE number. It's these intense hurricanes like Ada and Iota and Laura that generate the ACE. Yeah, and we've been talking uh, for obvious reasons about the Atlantic hurricane season, but something that I always remind people of is Atlantic hurricanes are just different names for other types of storms in other parts of the world, <laughs> cyclones and, and, and typhoons, for example. So put into perspective for the listeners what the 2020 tropical cyclone season was like. In other words, what, what were the typhoon season? And even as we're recording or as taping this episode, I, there's a cyclone, I think, happening or, or over in another part of the world right now. So uh, were other basins active or were they more quiet? Yeah, and so that's, and so with La Nina increases Atlantic hurricane activity, that's pretty well known, it's been talked about for a long time, but La Nina tends to weaken storm activity in the Pacific Ocean, so in the Eastern Pacific off the coast of Mexico, and it really knocks down the typhoon season as well. You, you don't necessarily get fewer storms, but the storms tend to form farther west and farther north, so they generate less ace because their tracks are shorter, they are less time over warm water, so you tend to get weaker storms in La Nina years. And so if you look this year, global or in the Northern Hemisphere, it's actually a below normal season. And that's because the Pacific is a much larger ocean. The water's warm over a much larger area. So if you want an active Northern Hemisphere season, you want a strong El Nino. A year like 2015, Atlantic was very quiet, or classic examples, 97. The Atlantic was very quiet in both 2015 and 97, but they're both very active Northern hemispheres because the Eastern Pacific and the Western Pacific were much more active. So this year was extremely quiet in both the Eastern Pacific as well as the Western Pacific. The Western Pacific has picked up some lately, but especially the Eastern Pacific, we only had four hurricanes in the Eastern Pacific this year. And I think going back to 71, the only year that had three, I believe was 2010. So, which also was a strong, which also was a, which even stronger La Nina year. So kind of the classic example is, in the La Nina, the Atlantic goes up, the Pacific goes down, but because the Pacific is a much larger ocean, um, generally if the Atlantic goes, if the Atlantic is where the air is going up, that generally means a quieter overall northern hemisphere because the Atlantic just can't generate as many storms as the Pacific can, even though it, it tried really hard this year. And speaking of the Pacific, and I recall, and I can't think of the name right now, you'll be, pull, be able to pull it, I'm sure, but I think we had one of the strongest typhoons on record this year, and I, I want you to talk about that, but I want to also ask this question because um, one of my producers wanted me to mention this. Although there is a value in providing these seasonal forecasts, which you do well, we want to caution people that you don't need necessarily a busy season to have an impactful season. 1992 with Andrew comes to mind for me. Uh, that was uh, one of the storms I studied in grad school. Um, what should our messaging be in terms of the seasonal predictions that you give versus impactful seasons? Uh, but before that, I mean, if you want to say anything about it, because it, my point about the typhoon that I mentioned is even though it perhaps wasn't as, as active of a Pacific season, we had one of the strongest storms on record in that basin uh, this year. So talk about that particular storm and then this notion of the value of seasonal forecasts in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you certainly can get 
extremely impactful storms in an otherwise fairly quiet season. And obviously, the Western Pacific, even if it's quiet, still generates a lot of activity. And so we did have we had we had Goni go, we had uh, Super Typhoon Goni, which was um, maxed out close to let's say it was 170 knots, I believe. Um, so yeah, I mean it was an extremely intense storm. Um, it basically kind of just blew up. Uh, right before being landfall in the Philippines. And so obviously you can still have extremely impactful storms um, in an otherwise fairly benign overall season. Um, as you mentioned, 1992 was a great example. Dr. Gray put out a great forecast that year of only one major hurricane. We only had one and Andrew was late August. So that was the A storm, but that one storm happened to make landfall in South Florida as a category five. Um, and then it trekked through the Gulf and made landfall in Louisiana as a category three. So just that one major hurricane, but it was obviously incredibly damaging. But when it comes to seasonal forecasts, in general, more active seasons do have more landfalling hurricanes. So if you say, look, you can always find examples of, you know, ones, you could have a year like 1983 that had only four storms all year. The Alicia was a major hurricane, did a lot of damage in Houston, but it was an extremely quiet season. But you can have a year like 2010 where we had 12 hurricanes in the Atlantic and not one hit the U.S., but in general, more active seasons do have more landfall. So our messaging always is, you know, you need to be prepared the same every season because you can have a season like 2020 where if you're in Florida, you would think, oh, my gosh, they're forecasting a crazy active season. Florida is going to take one on the chin. And unless you happen to be in extreme northwest part of Florida um, where they got hit pretty hard by, by the eastern eyewall Sally, most of Florida didn't have any significant impacts. I mean, you had Ada, but it wasn't a hugely impactful storm for Florida but obviously it was extremely impactful for Louisiana. Um, but basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you need to be prepared the same every hurricane season, regardless of seasonal forecast, because certainly I do them every year, but they're certainly not perfect. There's years where we bust horribly. Um, and even if we forecast perfectly how active the season is going to be, we can't say where the storms are going to go because that's governed by mid-latitude weather, which changes a lot from day to day. So it's just a superposition of, where the storm happens to be and how the kind of the steering flows. So basically how the mid-latitude ridge trough pattern um, is there to basically make the storms either track, you know, further west, further east, et cetera. And, and, and from the, the peer review literature that I've seen, Phil, I mean, I do know that there is skill, uh, I guess, uh, accumulated skill over the years in this. I mean, you're, this is not just sort of coin flip thing. I mean, you, there, you are exhibiting skill. And because of that, I imagine that, you know, okay, you've got the individual homeowner or consumer in Florida that may be using your your information, but I can imagine there are some businesses and insurance companies and supply chain uh, folks that are very interested in your forecast and perhaps even um, for rightfully so may even, because I, you don't do this, so, you know, the, the funding comes from somewhere. So I'm curious as to whether you have these sort of industry level supporters of yours financially or otherwise. Yeah, so our forecasts are primarily actually supported by we get a grant we get some grants from a nonprofit foundation, um, and then we also have insurance industry um, sponsorship. And so you know, insurance companies people have thought, oh well, you know, you you call for an active season, the rates go up. That's not the way it works because obviously insurance rates um, are typically are set in December um, for the upcoming year, and we don't do our forecasts. Our first forecast doesn't come out till April, and obviously, you know. We put out forecasts, NOAA puts out forecasts, all sorts of other groups put out forecasts, and those go up and down over the course of the year. And obviously insurance rates aren't changing from April to June to August. But I think a lot of it is more than just like for, for an inf and so our seasonal forecasts in general, are, it's more of an informational tool. You know, it's basically, we can, we can give you some information as to how active the season is, but in terms of preparedness, 
I don't think there's a ton of, you know, specific preparation that's done based off of a seasonal forecast. Um, there is kind of, there is a lot of discussion. I've been discussing this with various people in industry about, you know, how to make seasonal forecasts more relevant to industry. Um, and obviously there kind of, I think needs to be some give and take on both sides because obviously if you're an insurance company or whatever, you want to know, is a storm going to work person on the coast? Is this, am I going to get hit by a hurricane? And obviously we can't say that six, you know, one, two months in advance, but perhaps there's things we can say like storms are more like, if we could say, for example, in 2020, Hey, we're going to probably get more storms for, it's going to be active, but the storms are forming farther West. That tends to be, those storms are going to impact people. We can't say who, but it's going to more likely impact people. Whereas if a lot of storms form off of Africa, those storms can trek all the way across like Irma, but in general, those storms are more likely to recurve and go out to sea. So I think there's more perhaps we can do with maybe where the storms are forming. Um, that might be something that could be more, something that people can use a little more, that's a little more relevant than just predicting overall, hey, this hurricane season looks above or below normal. So that's certainly, certainly work um, I'm currently working on. I saw right before I started here, there was an email from a colleague of mine that I'm working with from Canada trying to kind of explore some of these kind of steering stuff in a little more detail. I think you're not going to probably, there's probably not a lot of useful information on kind of the overall seasonal forecast of like the Bermuda high for a season, but maybe more on a shorter time scale for a few weeks. Then I think you might be able to suck it a little better into what might steer storms say for the next several weeks. As you mentioned before, I do sub-seasonal, we do sub-seasonal two-week forecasts to maybe try to get some steering component into those shorter term forecasts is kind of what we're potentially looking at coming up. Yeah, as we start to kind of ramp down this amazing discussion with Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State, let's deal with sort of the elephant in the room for some people, which is climate change. Because when we see a season like 2020 or 2005, you start seeing all kinds of sort of viewpoints on either side of the ledger about climate change. And you know, I, I know that there, you know, you and I know that there are things like the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation and the natural cycles. But we also, I think, know that there is a climate change happening um, I think there's been misinformation on sort of the hurricane climate change connection. And I, I always refer people to the NOAA GFDL hurricanes and, and global warming page, because to me, that feels like that's a good consensus. And I know people like your colleague, Chris Lancy and others have published and the, their, their work is there. So I, I want to set the record straight because my understanding is that where the best consensus thinking is, is that for at least hurricanes, um, there's some notion that there would be more intense hurricanes on average, but not necessarily more frequent hurricanes or more of them, which is something to get thrown out there. And so I also know that there's some work out there in terms of, you know, whether they're slowing down, whether they're intensifying at, at higher latitudes and so forth. So what is your best understanding of where we are in the climate change hurricane linkage? Yeah, so there's a lot of different there's a lot of different factors going into it, and so you know, especially with 2020 getting so many storms, people say, "Oh, is that the new normal?" You know, blazing through half the Greek alphabet. You know, trying to hit Hurricane Pi by Thanksgiving. Um, you know, and so most of the general. So if you look kind of at long term observations of the number of storms, so the number of storms globally, that number hasn't really changed, and we don't necessarily think it will. Um, there's Obviously, when you start running these climate models, you get all sorts of fun answers that can give all sorts of, you know, strange results. But in general, the consensus, which may or may not be right, is that we may not necessarily see more storms, but the storms that do form may be a little bit stronger um, and potentially intensify faster. Um, and so you have, 
In climate change, you warm the ocean surface, which is a plus for the hurricane because it's more fuel for the storm. Uh, but you also warm throughout the atmosphere, and so you tend to stabilize, which is a negative for the storm. And so kind of in general, the warmer water ocean surface is probably more of a plus than the warmer atmosphere is a minus. But how much that, how much that plus versus minus goes is, is kind of one of the big debates. Obviously, for me, one of the fundamental questions that I don't think is really we know yet is how is El Nino going to change? Because if we get more El Nino events, overall, that's going to really impact maybe Atlantic storms may actually get quieter, but you're going to get more overall global storms, more global overall major hurricane strength storms, higher ACE. Um, and so that's a big question. But I think what we know probably better than the intensity of the storms is we know, you know, sea level in general is going up, not it's going up some places more than in others. Um, but if sea level rises, even if storms didn't change at all, the same storm surge is now going to have farther coastal. You're going to get more inundation from the coastline because the background sea level is higher. Also, with the warmer atmosphere, while that tends to stabilize and maybe knock down the increases in storm intensity, it also means it can hold more moisture. So you're going to see more rain from hurricanes, even if they don't necessarily slow down, which is another potential factor as well. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion in the literature now about our storms slowing down, how much they're slowing down, are they slowing down over water and over land because if storms slow down over land, that's bad because it brings more rain. But if storms slow down over water, if they slow down enough over water, they turn up cold water and can weaken themselves. So there's there's a lot of kind of nuances that still need to be worked out on that. So I think, you know, we know for sure storms are going to cause more damage just because more people are living along the coast. That's regardless of any climate change impacts. The sea level rise is pretty is very well documented. Um, the fact that the atmosphere is warmer, holding more holding more moisture, bringing more rainfall, those are pretty solid physical ties. Some of these other things are still certainly being debated, but um, I think overall the number of storms probably isn't going to change. We may see more overall these very weak short-lived storms just being named due to improvements in technology, but in terms of, say, getting more, say, hurricanes overall, we don't necessarily expect to see that. It may just be that we get basically a higher percentage of hurricanes reaching these higher thresholds just given the overall warmer ocean surface temperatures. Yeah, and I think that if you want to really follow up on some of what uh, Dr. Klotzbach just mentioned, again, check out the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Labs Hurricane and Global Warming website. It's a very good, well-kept, up-to-date resource. Final question. Uh, you, you're good at Twitter and social media. You, I, I think you've, uh, you've made a name for yourself before that. But I think you've also made an um, emerging name for yourself as just an effective user as a, as a scientist of Twitter. Uh, was that by design or is it just something you stumbled upon? And by the way, give, give, give folks your Twitter handle while you're, while you're answering. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at and then Phil Klotzbach. So just my Phil, P-H-I-L, and then my last name, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. Uh, I signed up for Twitter long before I thought I was really going to do anything with it because I probably would have come up with a more creative handle than my first and last name. <laughs> You know, it's, so I didn't really start on Twitter doing to do, um, you know, to do kind of what I what, what I do now. But, you know, kind of so doing seasonal forecasting, you have to have all these tropical cyclone statistics just because you have to know you have to build your model on historical hurricane data. So effectively, just it's using the national most of it's for the Atlantic. So I focus mostly on the Atlantic. I will do some other global stuff, depending, frankly, how active the Atlantic is. If the Atlantic's quiet, I'll probably look more at other basins for, for stuff to tweet about. Um, 
but basically what I try to do is kind of try to put these storms in perspective. So I don't try, I'm not posting like, you know, the hurricane center does a fantastic job with their forecast. I don't usually talk much about what, so basically what I try to do is say, okay, the hurricane center is forecasting this storm to say become a category five. If that forecast verifies, when was the last time we had a category five in this region? I try to kind of, you know, because again, kind of like when someone hits a home, you know, someone hits six home runs in four games, how does that compare with historical stuff? I try to do that the same with hurricanes. It's try to put these in perspective. Is this a one in five year event? Is this a one in 50 year event? Has this never happened on record before? Like, it's good to kind of have those things because frankly, I'm interested. And I think it's also good to kind of put these events in perspective. So I try to kind of, you know, when say, for example, Laura is making landfall in Louisiana. Okay. How strong is it? Okay. In case of Laura, it was tied for the strongest hurricane in terms of winds to hit Louisiana since 1856. So, okay, that's a, this is a, this is a legit storm. This is not something Louisiana has seen very much of. So try to kind of put these events in historical perspective. And I think for me, frankly, the most impressive one this year was probably Ada and Iota, two category four hurricanes hitting Nicaragua um, 13 days apart. And prior to this year, we had never had anything more than a cat three hit Nicaragua in November. And they were by two cat fours, just 13 days apart. So just, how highly impactful those two storms were for Nicaragua, especially at that late time of year. Yeah, that, that was that was all. I I agree. That really caught me off guard as well. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, before we let you get out of here, though, I've got to give our geek of the week. It's uh, we like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Alyssa Reynolds. She is a graduate research associate at the Ohio State University. She is very passionate about her state. She created a basic tornado climatology of the Ohio Valley region as her undergraduate research thesis. That's great stuff, Alyssa. If you or someone you know is a deserving candidate of our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Phil, Phil, it's really been an honor to have you on Weather Geeks. Thank you for joining. I think we had you on the TV version of Weather Geeks as well, as I, as I recall. So I think this is your first appearance on the podcast version. Yeah, so actually Eric Blake, who was a, who's now a senior hurricane specialist at the Hurricane Center, he was also a Dr. Bill Gray student. He and I were on together um, probably five, six years ago. We had a lot of fun geeking out on stuff, so. Yeah, it's amazing how long how Weather Geeks has been around now. And, you know, as you see with this podcast format, we can go into a lot more detail because the TV show, basically, we had about 16 minutes when you put in the commercials and weather on the eight. So I really love geeking out with experts like you. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to, great to see you virtually. Yeah, absolutely. And stay safe. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.